This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the 482nd episode of the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and for those of you tuning in, we are recording this episode in front of an audience of students at Chapman University in Orange County, where I'm a trustee professor at the Dodge College of Film and Media Arts. My guest today is one of the most talented and exciting young actors in Hollywood. As we'll discuss in greater detail in a moment, he started out in the business as a preteen on TV series aimed at kids and young adults, then had a big breakthrough on Broadway in 2018, and then began getting cast in films by some of the world's top filmmakers, among them Jim Jarmusch, who directed him in The Dead Don't Die, and Quentin Tarantino, who directed him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, both of which were released in 2019, just before the pandemic. And then, of course, he starred in the film that we've just screened here, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, which was one of the most popular releases of 2022. For his performance as Elvis Presley between the ages of 19 and 42, this 31-year-old received the sorts of reviews that actors dream of. And between those and the reactions of the public, it quickly became clear that we have a major new star on our hands. That impression has only grown over the last few months, during which he won Best Actor, BAFTA, and Golden Globe Awards, and was nominated for Best Actor, Critics' Choice, and SAG Awards. And on March 12th, he will be up for the Best Actor Academy Award as well, poised to become its fifth youngest winner ever. Whatever happens 11 nights from now, we will be seeing a lot more of him for a long time to come. And for that we should all consider ourselves very lucky. Would you please join me in welcoming to Chapman University, Mr. Austin Butler. Are you getting used to that now? Does that get old hat, Austin? That's, that's incredible. You guys are amazing. <laughs> Thank you all for being here. I heard some people were here since five in the morning or something. That's exactly. Jeez. Well, thank you so much for making the trek up here. I'm so happy to be here. Austin, we always begin on this podcast and at these master classes by asking our guests if they would share where they were born and raised and what their folks did for a living. I think you are going to have a different answer than a closer to home answer than anyone we've had yet. Where are you from? Uh, Anaheim, California. 
Very close to here. <laughs> Spent your first probably uh, yeah first 12 years yeah. here and then i moved to la yeah and what did but, your uh, folks do my dad was a commercial real estate appraiser and my mom she when i was born she she was a dental hygienist and then and then she uh she ended up becoming a she did daycare out of the house because she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom so so i grew up with all these little kids in the house and they were they were most of the kids that uh there was a elementary school close by yeah. And so it's the teacher's kids that she she watched while they were at work, you know. Yeah. So I always had little kids in the house. I know that your mother was a, a huge influence on your life. And we are going to, in a moment, talk more specifically about how that helped usher you towards acting. But first, we have a little surprise. Steve Uftelli a Chapman alum who works for the Orange County Archives reached out to me this week because he said that he had stumbled upon something in their archives from 1995, which has never so been seen before. You were four years this? old. So let's... I'm getting nervous. <laughs> let's turn to the big screen. Oh, geez. The readout atop the bank building was a clue. 99 degrees in Santa Ana before noon Tuesday. And if that wasn't convincing enough, how about the headline? Record heat scorches county. It w really was a lot cooler here. Whoa, that's but my it's mom. Still hot. Yes, I think we all have burns. But probably the best thing about heading to the beach is it's a lot cooler here. Newport Beach was about 20 degrees cooler than Santa Ana. Four-year-old Austin has been closely watching the temperature in Anaheim. How hot was it? Like 60 degrees. Was 60 degrees at home? <laughs> now, short but pretty cool, huh? I'm genuinely gobsmacked right now. I had no idea I did that interview. <laughs> well, it was you were only four, but that's just crazy. a little snippet. You, thank you. That's to, insane. Thank you to Steve for that. Um, so I guess that just to connect the dots between your childhood around here and getting into acting, you've said that your parents, I think, divorced at seven, when you were seven, yeah. your mother briefly remarried. That meant that you had a stepbrother. And how did that kind of lead to the beginning of all this for you? Well, so I, I yeah, so I had a stepbrother and his father was um, a hairdresser and, um, my stepbrother always, he always admired afros, but he wasn't gifted with one of those. So he, he asked his dad to give him a perm and it turned out really strange. <laughs> and so he had this wild head of hair and, um, and, uh, it never, it never looked quite right. You know, I, I still remember him with those little perming things in his hair. And, uh, <laughs> and so he was at the Orange County Fair and had just this really unique look and, um, and got scouted by a background talent agent. And so they said, you know, you should come up to L.A. and audition for this thing. And we didn't realize what being an extra was. We just thought, you know, you're going to be a star. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be a movie star. And so I just I just went along as as their other son, you know. And we got up to L.A. and it turned out to be this giant casting call. And, uh, and then they said, you have another son. He should do it, too. And so I, I went and... For, I don't know what came over me that day because I was so shy. You know, I would never talk to anybody that wasn't very close to me. And um, I've said it before, but I would I would whisper to my mom what I wanted to order at a restaurant. And she would order for me. And um, so the fact that 
that now this is my job and I'm, I'm in front of a lot of people right now. This is not in my nature, you know? Right. Um, but she, yeah, she said, you want to do it, Austin? And I don't know what came over me, but I said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And, and so I had to read this audition for like, I think it was Welch's grape juice or something like that. And, uh, and years later I found out they didn't even have film in the camera, but I would, my, my legs were shaking and I remember reading this audition and, and then they said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll get them headshots and we'll do this thing. And, um, so then we had to pay them money and they got us headshots and different things. And that's how I got on my first set. First set. And this, I believe started out fairly regularly doing background work on, this Nickelodeon show, Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide. <laughs> I think you're, you've got the exact demo that grew up with you here, so this is great. Uh, now, I mention this because I think there was another, you know, I guess in hindsight, you kind of look back and you meet somebody who introduces you to somebody, which all these steps along the way, you know, things could be very different if one of them wasn't there. Was there somebody you met on that project who sort of then introduce you to somebody else. Yeah. I'm wondering who you're referring to, but it might be my first manager. Yes. Yeah. So I, I, uh, Lindsay Shaw was, was the main actress on that show. And, uh, yeah, let's hear it for Lindsay. Uh, but she, uh, yeah, so she played a character called Mose on that show. And she, um, so I was just, I mean, I'm just an extra. I was, uh, if you watch that show, you'll, you'll see me walking around the one person's coverage in a green shirt. And then it turns around and I'm in an orange shirt walking the other way. And uh, so that was, that was how I, I got comfortable on a set. Because yeah. there's no responsibility in but there was a couple, there's a couple things in that first experience that changed a lot for me. And that was one, it was Lindsay and, and her mom introducing me to their, their manager, whose name was Pat Cutler. And, uh, and I wouldn't be here without her. You know, I owe her so much cause she, she used to coach me before auditions. She told me all the acting classes to go to, connected me to my first agent, um, and, uh, and so it was, it was Pat, my first manager. And then it was also a guy named Vince Duque, who was the second AD on that show. And he's the first person who gave me Stella Adler's book. And he started telling me, you know, watch East of Eden, watch Raging Bull, watch. He, he told me, you got to do theater. And, um, and started planting these seeds in my brain when I was 12 years old. And, and so it introduced me to the love of the craft, you know, cause, cause at that point I was so shy and I was also so bad as an actor, you know, you're, it's hard. It's really acting such a strange thing. And, and, um, and to not be incredibly self-conscious in front of a camera. And so he started to introduce me to these, these great teachers that, that I started to really just devour these books and, and really started my love of the craft. And you were now, thanks to your mother, I believe you were able to, you started taking acting classes, which meant doing the commute that you've just done yeah. tonight, but both ways, I was, right? I was looking at some of the, you know, the Citadel as you drive up to LA and different things and, and remembering driving up, we, I mean, in traffic, you can sometimes drive three hours and my mom would drive me to auditions and acting class every day. Yeah. So you began being homeschooled, I think after a couple of years of starting down this path, that meant that you were obviously pretty committed to this. Was there did you feel that total support at home that this was a, um, you know, path worth pursuing? I think at one point, hadn't your mother herself 
gone down to, uh, the path of being an actress? Well, she she always wanted to. She wanted to be in school plays as a as a kid, but her her parents didn't really allow it. And so I think when she saw this passion in me, she she really she embraced it wholeheartedly, and and she quit her job. You know, I mean, that that was an incredible sacrifice. And uh, and then so she would drive me every day, and she was on set with me at Ned's, and she flew with me to New Zealand to shoot a movie, and you know the the amount of time that it took, and um, so yeah, I wouldn't be here without that. So those early jobs that I referenced in the introduction, these are um, a lot of stuff on Nickelodeon, a lot of stuff on the Disney Channel that were you know. Yeah, you're, it's not streetcar named desire, but it's but you're but you're really getting just I guess learning step by step a, a bit more about how you do what you do. This is Hannah Montana. You had your first named character, Zoe, Zoe 101, Your first speaking part. I didn't I didn't factor into our time the amount of uh, applause that each of these are going to get. Uh, You've said, you know, it's been kind of cool to watch the a lot of a number of the kids who you came up with, for example, on Wizards of Waverly Place, Selena Gomez. You guys, you guys are it's kind of cool. You're still very much in the game. What were when you think back to those projects, I know that you've said, you know, it's not necessarily exactly what you dreamed of doing for the rest of your life, but were there things that you took away? you know, valuable, valuable things that have, or things that have been proven to be valuable in the years since. Yeah. I mean, I think especially as, as a young actor being on set and seeing, seeing your role to serve the story, you know, and, 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 and then there's things you have to unlearn as well. And so at that age, it was, it was uh, learning all the technical aspects, knowing where your where the camera is, knowing where your light is, how to hit a mark, memorizing your lines, and not losing that all as soon as they call action, you know. And um, and then so I mean it's it's taking a lot of those things, and then they become second nature, and then then it's kind of I love Joaquin Phoenix. He talked about working with Gus Van Sant and how Gus told him, you know, just if you get the urge to stand up at some point do it if you if you want to light a cigarette and leave the room go for it you know and that sort of freedom um i think that 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 was a thing that i had to learn all those technical things and then try to figure out a way of unlearning them uh you know yeah so then as you i guess aged out of that demo of programming you're now in the young adult programming and in fact i think in the middle of, of one such project, The Carrie Diaries. This is for our listeners. And I think our attendees here know this, but it was a Sex and the City prequel on the CW. You're working there, and in the midst of this, you experience a very tough personal loss that I, you have said when you were nice enough to do our roundtable um, for The Hollywood Reporter, that basically it caused you to sort of reevaluate a lot of things, right? What was that moment like for you, that moment in time? I think in the middle of, you know, what a lot of people would look at and assume, you know, that's, that this guy's on the rise. He, he's on a show that people are watching and talking about. But I think after losing your mom, you said you really looked at things differently. Yeah, yeah, it was, so I did the Carrie Diaries. I was, um, 
And that's the first time I lived in New York. And, and in L.A., theater wasn't really a part of our culture out here. So I didn't grow up watching a lot of plays. But that seed that was planted of you got to do theater, then suddenly I was living in New York. And I started going to the theater a lot. And, you know, I remember seeing Mark Rylance and when he was doing Richard III and The Twelfth Night and um, just all these incredible plays around that time. So I'd watch 14 plays in two weeks and I just, I'd devour it. Um, and then... And then I went back to L.A. after the Carrie Diaries. I remember hearing that we didn't get picked up for another season while I was rehearsing this play at the Geffen in L.A. That's the first play I ever did. And, and also during that rehearsal period is when I heard that my mom had cancer. And so she was, she was sick during that time. She got, to, she got out of surgery and got to come to our opening night at the Geffen. And uh, that's, that's a memory I'll, I'll savor for the rest of my life, you know, just getting to look down and see my mom in the audience uh, at the end of the play. Um, and then when I finished that play, then I, I took care of her until she passed away. And then, and then I, a week after she passed, I went off to start shooting the show called The Shannara Chronicles. And thank you. And um, and so I, I ended up filming that show. And when I got done with that, that's when I really, you know, you, it's hard to process grief in the midst of working a lot. And so I would, I, I, I kind of needed time after that. And I started to really reevaluate things and, and realize that there was a direction that I wanted to go that was fulfilling and... Then there was other things that I, I it's, it's hard talking about because I value so deeply all those experiences that I had as an actor, but there was a certain type of work that I wanted to be doing and I, I didn't feel that I was really doing that. And after that grief, it really made me question if, if being an actor was what I wanted to do. Um, I started thinking, is there another way that I could help people and, and make other people's lives better in some way. And then I just, I, I took time off and I, I didn't work for almost a year. And I just said no to auditions and, and, but I went back to watching films. And as I was watching films, I had that experience that I've had so many times throughout my life of that, you know, that transcendent experience where you sit in a dark room and you're transported by the magic of cinema. And, um, and it made me really realize why I love this and why I feel so privileged to be a part of this community. And, and all that films have given me and, and those performances that when I'm having a day where I feel lonely, they make me feel not so alone, you know, or they, they make the world feel a little bit brighter or they make me feel a little bit more kind when I leave the theater or um, a, a little bit more love in my heart or whatever those things are. And so I, I kind of doubled down on, on wanting to be an actor, but wanting to, wanting to work with certain people and wanting to tell stories in, in, in the way that I've always dreamed of. And, and so around that time is when I got this audition for The Iceman Cometh with Denzel on Broadway. And I guess it yeah. helped that one of your hobbies during the hiatus from acting was getting in. I guess you had a camera. Yeah, because I kind of thought, well, maybe I won't be an actor. Maybe I'll direct or something. Yeah. And so I, I, I went out and I, I, I bought a camera and I started directing short films and that sort of thing. And, and then, 
And then that's when I got this audition. So, I, and I'd never, I don't know if I'd ever booked an audition off of a tape before. I'd always heard of actors, you know, taping themselves and then getting a job. And it, it was never my experience. And, but then this I approached so differently because suddenly I'd been thinking about directing and I'd, I'd been thinking about how I'd want to shoot something. And so I ended up, uh, I ended up shooting this audition like it was a film. And I, I had an actor come over and we did it handheld with this really nice camera. And, and I felt so much more invested in it. And, um, and so that's, yeah, then I ended up getting that part. Well, I mean, it's this, I was lucky enough to see it. This is a George C. Wolf revival of uh, Iceman Cometh, where, as you mentioned, Denzel's the, the main attraction. But you are at that point, um, you're playing the newest and youngest resident of this sort of dive bar boarding house uh, with a large ensemble of very experienced actors in many cases. And I guess that could be very intimidating. And it probably was. I'll ask you to share that. But you also seem to recognize an opportunity because what I've heard is it was sort of a thing for you to beat Denzel to the theater every day. What was that about? <laughs> I mean, I, I just... Uh it was, uh, there were so many aspects of that, that play where I, I felt that this was, um, there's been moments in my, in my life and, and my career where I felt like you, you just know that it's a, a chapter shift, you know? And that was, that was one of those where it was incredibly terrifying. Getting up on stage at all is terrifying, but when you're opposite Denzel, you just know he can steamroll over you if you don't hold your own. Eight times a week, Eight times. almost we four hours. We did seven hours. times a week, yeah, four-hour play. Four hour, like. So two days a week you're doing eight hours on stage, um, and it's a really heavy play. Um, so I, I memorized the entire four-hour play before the first table read. I, I hired a friend of mine to just read with me every day. And, and so I memorized the entire play. So I showed up at the first table read and they sat Denzel right next to me. And I just, I made a point of not looking at the script and just reading the whole thing. And everybody's <laughs> kind of looking at me going, who's this kid? What's he doing? And, um, and, but there was, there's this moments where I've, I've felt a need to sort of like prove myself or something. Yeah. And then, and also just go above and beyond in every way. And so one thing I did do was I would just show up very early every day and I would I'd do warm ups on the stage. And I, it's always like I just I like the idea of stacking the deck, yeah. you know, when you just stack the deck in your favor as much as you can. So and he noticed. Uh, yeah. So he noticed. And then but he's also a very punctual person who he'd show up early. Right. And then we kind of start showing up earlier than each other. <laughs> there's one day where, where he he thought he was there before me, but I was already upstairs and I'd, I'd gotten dressed and everything. <laughs> and I came down and he said, oh, I thought I beat you here. And I said, no. Nah. And so it's just Denzel on a, on a chair in the middle of this dark theater. And uh, he said, come over here. I got an idea for you. And so I sat down, like I sat kind of at his feet, like a, like a student just kind of trying to soak in any bit of his information. And he started giving me notes on different scenes. And, um, and he really started to kind of take me under his wing in a way and tell me little things like, he told me, you know, with Eugene O'Neill, you can ride the rhythm of the text like you do in Shakespeare. And little things like that that just that will stick with me forever. He's going to come back into the story in a little bit, but I do want to note that whatever you were doing with or without his assistance, here's what the response was to your Broadway debut 
Ben Brantley in the New York Times wrote, you made, quote, a sensationally assured Broadway debut, close quote. Hilton Ells in New York in the New Yorker wrote, quote, although there are many performers in the show, there is only one actor and his name is Austin Butler, close quote. That must have made you feel pretty good. Yeah, that feels good. But uh, I really expected them to rip me apart in New York. Yeah. It's, it's that thing where you're an L.A. actor and you're going to New York and you're expecting the worst. But I just, I, had, I learned so much from Denzel in that rehearsal room. You know, I'll never, I'll never forget it. So after that, not long after that, you are in a movie directed by somebody who I think was, you've said was sort of part of the reason why you wanted to become an actor in the first place. What was your prior kind of uh, th thoughts about Quentin Tarantino before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? And then how did that come about? And I'll just remind people you were playing Tex Watson, one of the deranged Manson family members. We'll come back to more stuff about that in a moment. But just uh, why Tarantino meant a lot to you and then how you actually came to work with him. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when I watched... Pulp Fiction for the first time. I was about 12. And it was, it's, it was my first experience of watching a film and noticing the writing in, in such a way that I, I started to... I printed out the script and, and I just became obsessed with his style of writing. Before that, I'd watched the film and I kind of just thought about it as this whole thing. But in that, in that moment, I, I, I started to kind of dissect a film and realize that somebody had to write these words and somebody else had to decide where to put the camera and all those kinds of things, you know. And, um, so he just became this pinnacle for me as far as the people that I'd, I'd love to work with one day. But he doesn't make a movie very often and I really didn't. I, I didn't have that much hope that it would actually happen, but I kind of always just kept my sights there as, as this dream. And then I was, I was doing The Iceman Cometh, and I get this audition that came through for Once Upon a Time. And I didn't have, I didn't have time to, you know, call a friend and say, hey, can you come over and read this audition with me or anything? I, I had to go to the theater. So I had about two hours, and, and so I recorded on my phone. He wanted me to do two parts so he said and, and neither one was the one that I eventually played in the film but it was uh, there were kind of dummy sides you know it was, it was a bad guy and a good guy and he said I want you to read both of those characters and so I recorded both the characters with a space for where I could speak and I recorded the other characters dialogue and I set it on top of the camera and I just filmed myself and I acted to a mark on the wall and that's the tape that I sent to Quinn, but I just didn't have time. Yeah. And I was always such a perfectionist with things before that, but that day I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on stage eight hours some nights. I can do a two-minute audition scene like this and, and not be such a perfectionist about things and just send it out there, throw your hat in the ring. And, um, and, then, and then I got the call the next day and they said, Quinn wants you to fly out on your day off. And so Monday was my day off, and so I flew out. On, I, I finished the show on Sunday, flew to L.A., and met with Quentin. I had two other meetings that day, uh, but they, they at Quentin's office to make you you'd give your phone away when you show up. And so my agent thought that something really bad had happened because <laughs> I, I just missed these other two meetings. I was with Quentin for almost 12 hours, oh and um, I went in not knowing what part I was auditioning for. And they told me, and then they, and then Quentin showed up, and he said, "All right, so here's the material. I'm going to go away for an hour, and I want you to 
he made me the team captain. He basically two of us. He said, "You're team captain of these actors. There's a team captain of these other actors in a different room, and you're both. I'm just going to mix and match all of you." And so it was, it was me and, and another guy, and then they mixed and matched all the all the actresses who were going to play the parts of the the Manson girls. And so uh, he mixed and matched us for hours, and then he started letting people go one by one. And then it got down at the end. It was my hawk and, and myself, and we were there, kind of going, "I don't know if I don't know what's going to happen now." And, and I got up to go use the restroom or something. At one point, the casting director came out and she said, "Where are you going?" I said, "Oh, I just was going to use the loo." And she said, "She said, well, after you finish, then go into that room." And uh, and I didn't know what the room was and. So I'm, I'm in there and I'm going, okay. And I'm looking at myself in the mirror going, all right, is this where I get let go or do I get the job? And, and then I went in and it was Quentin's office. I said, shut the door, shut the door. So I shut the door and, and he, started, he started sort of telling me these ideas. And he said, I got this idea of this long horse, you know, chase. Do you like the idea of riding a horse? And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I love riding horses. And, and then he was like, yeah, I got this other idea of this fight scene with Brad Pitt. You, you think you'd like to rehearse that with, yeah, I mean, Fight Club's one of my favorite movies of all time. And, uh, and then he goes, okay, well, I'd, I'd love for you to be my Tex Watson. And he shook my hand and, and it was, that was that full circle thing, remembering those auditions with my mom, reading that Pulp Fiction script, and suddenly here I am with him getting that job. Yeah. It's a it's a great story, and just since we're talking about the script, is there one line in particular that you are uh, most often asked to share from that movie? Um, probably I'm as real as a donut, motherfucker. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought yeah, so. Yeah, um, and that just came to Quinn in the moment. Really? Yeah, that wasn't in the script. <laughs> he that day, Brad started improvising things. And then, and then Quentin said, why don't you say, cause, cause like, I think Brad improvised, are you real? And then Quentin said, why don't you say I'm as real as a bullet motherfucker? And then, so I said that, and then I don't know if it was Brad, but somebody misheard me and they thought I said I'm as real as a donut. And Quentin was like, that'd be funny. <laughs> yeah. And then I went outside preparing to say I'm yeah. as real as a bullet again. And then Quentin opens the door and he goes, actually, Sam is real as a donut. <laughs> and then so I was like, all right. And so I went in and, and that's how that That happened. was a, a great movie and uh, nominated for Best Picture. A lot of people ended up seeing it. I'm sure that I, I would imagine that among the people who saw it was probably Baz Luhrmann, right? But meanwhile, we have a little... I guess the, the, let's start that story with something that you've described. You probably, this is probably the question I imagine maybe you're sickest of from this whole award season, but we'll just get it out of the way. You are, I believe on a drive through Griffith park with your then girlfriend, Vanessa Hudgens and a song comes on the radio. What happens? You hear a song. Yeah. So blue Christmas comes on and we're going to look at Christmas lights and um, and I, I just was singing along to this Christmas song. And she reached over and she grabbed my arm and she said, you need to play Elvis. And, uh, but that's such a long shot. So I just, I just brushed it off and I, was, I said, you know, I mean, that'd be cool, but it's, it's impossible. And then, and then a couple of weeks later, I was playing the piano at home. And I used to only ever play the piano for her or for, you know, I played the piano for my mom. And, but I, I wouldn't play it for anybody else. And, and she was sitting there and she said, you know, I'm serious. You got to figure out how you can get the rights to this, to Elvis's life and like write a script. 
And I thought, oh man, it's just, that's so, it, it just seems impossible. And then a couple days later, I got the call that Baz Luhrmann was making an Elvis film. And my, the hairs on my arms stood up and that's the moment where it just felt like the stars were aligning. And I think that's why I, I, I was delusional enough to throw all my chips on the table. And when you say that, what you mean is like, you don't even, I don't know if you even had an audition, let alone the part yet, but you do what? Well, yeah, no, I didn't have an audition, but I, I, I immediately, um, I immediately started researching like I had the part. So I watched every documentary and I bought every book that was written on Elvis's life. And I was, uh, I was painting a house at the time and so I just I made an entire playlist of Elvis's songs chronologically through his entire life so I just listened to those songs while I was painting and then um, and then I hired a dialect coach and a singing coach and a movement coach and a karate instructor and I just I just started I spent all my money on people just who could help me because I I wasn't a dancer at all I, I never sang in front of anybody that wasn't super close to me and um and I just knew that it was gonna it was gonna require a lot so I I just I went for it like I had the part at that point so when did, and when along the line do you actually hear from Baz Luhrmann that there might this might be for something I was about it was about two months after that okay that um so I've been training for that time and then and then my agent said, you got to, you know, we, we've sent Baz clips of you acting and he's seen Once Upon a Time. And, and um, so he knows, you know, he, he has faith in you as an actor, but he, you got to send him something of you singing. And so I, I, I started trying to figure out, like, what will I, what will I sing? And um, I've told this story so many times, so forgive me if you've already heard it. But nice. I, I, I recorded myself singing Love Me Tender. And, um, and that, and then I watched it back and I just saw this impersonation. I saw me trying to do all the external things of Elvis. And so I kind of went back to the drawing board and, and then one night I, I had this nightmare that my mom was dying again. And I woke up from that, that feeling of the freshness of that grief. And I was in tears and I, I just thought, Oh God, what do I, what do I do with this? And, and in that moment I thought, that song Unchained Melody came to my mind. I hadn't read the script. I had no idea it would be the last song in the film. And and so I sat down at the piano and I'd just woken up. My hair was a mess and I was in a bathrobe and I, I just set up a camera and I, I tried not to, I didn't think about any of the external things and instead I just sang that song to my mom. And because Elvis's mom passed away when he was 23, which is the same age I was when my mom died. And so that was, when I started doing that research, that was the first key into his humanity, you know? And so I filmed that and sent that to Baz, and, and that's, the, that's the thing that got me in the room with him. As blown away as he says now that he was by that video, he dragged you out, of, dragged this process out for quite a while, right? What was he, what was he asking of you? Well, so I first met with Baz uh, after he saw that. Then, then he said, I want you to fly to New York. And I flew to New York and we talked for about three hours. And then he, um, and then he said, you want to come in tomorrow and just read a couple scenes from the script? And so I said, yeah. And so I came in and he just opened up the script and we started reading scenes. And, and then he said, do you want to sing a song right now? And, 
And so then I, I thought, all right, I'm, I'm in now. And, and so I sang Don't Be Cruel or something. And then, and then he said, you want to come in tomorrow and read a couple more scenes and sing Suspicious Minds? And so I went home that night and I just worked on Suspicious Minds as much as I could and came in the next day. I did that. And this process went on for five months. And without so, any clarity of Without any clarity of when <laughs> you're going to get the job or anything. So and were you at that point like scared to take another job? Yeah, I didn't even look at another job. Yeah, I, I honestly, I just moved to New York. I, I mean, I already had an apartment there, but I, I moved over. I had been living in L.A. at the time, so I just I said, I'm going back to New York. And and then I I had my movement coach there, and, and um, I was working with Dana Wilson at that time. And uh, and then Polly Bennett came on when, when I was cast. But Dana and I, we just worked every day, and so... I'd work with her for like four hours a day and then I'd go and I'd meet Baz and, and we'd do some songs and we'd do some scenes and then the next day I'd get up and I'd work with my singing coach and movement coach and everything and I'd go back with Baz. and So that was the process for five months. And then suddenly they said, all right, now in July, I'd started in February. They said, so now it's July and they say, all right, now you got to do the screen test. And, and at, at this point... That's when it dawned on me that I may not get this. <laughs> and then I started hearing the other actors that were auditioning, and they're much more famous, and I'd heard their names, and suddenly you start imagining this. You think this was going on simultaneously? Well, I don't think that they were going through this five-month right. process. Now Baz says, I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but he says, you know, I knew from that first time I met you, but I wanted to just try to poke as many holes in this idea as I could. And uh, he also... He didn't know if I could play older Elvis, you know, and and, um, and that was a question I didn't even know. And um, so it was a lot of us experimenting together, me trying to figure out, do I believe myself? And him trying to figure out if he believes me in each one of these areas of Elvis's life. I just want to bring in, I believe this is chronologically where this happens. Correct me, obviously, if I'm wrong, but Baz says he gets a call. This is the quote from Baz. Denzel Washington called me. I had never met him, didn't know him at all. And he said, look, I know you're seeing this young man, Austin Butler, and I wanted to tell you that I have just been on stage with him and I have never seen an actor with a work ethic like him, close quote. So that comes back there. Were you aware that Denzel had even, that's quite a, quite a thing for no, him. I didn't know until after Denzel called. And then I tried to call Denzel to thank him. I couldn't, I couldn't get him on the <laughs> phone. Get him. I, I, I didn't have his number. I called his agent. I just said, hey, can you tell Denzel that I, yeah. I, I really appreciate him calling? Um, but, yeah, that was just out of the kindness of his heart, you know. And what I guess hopefully not too much longer after that is when you found out, like, how did Baz tell you you had it? And did you realize what a big moment that might yeah, be? Yeah, I mean... So I had those five months, then I, then I did the screen test. The day of the screen test, I'd had about a week to prepare specific material for that day. And so there was three scenes, and he wanted me to do, he said, he said I just want you to do a minute of Suspicious Minds. He said, I'm going to get a white jumpsuit and have you do a minute of Suspicious <laughs> Minds. And he told me exactly the part that he wanted me to do. And uh, and I, I, I'd spent enough time with him now to to think, you know, I'm, I'm going to prepare the whole thing. And so I prepared the entire Suspicious Minds with Dana and, and with my singing coach and everything. And I thought, you know, he, hopefully he doesn't make me do the whole thing. But just in case, then I know kind of the lead up and what happens after. And then 
And then he said, uh, I want you to do these three scenes. And in one of the scenes, he had me singing three songs in the scene. And um, it's a scene that never made it in the film, but it was it's a scene where I'm with Mr. Lansky and I'm trying to get him to, to give me a suit. And so I end up trying to charm him by singing these three different songs. Right. And, um, and so I showed up to the screen test. And he also, the night before, he called me and said, rather than meet at 9 a.m., could you get here at 6.45? So I'm like, I'm not a morning person at all. <laughs> and so I, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll get there early. And yeah. I got there, and what I didn't realize was they were auditioning multiple people that same day. So they wanted to get me in early. So then I get there, I show up, they put me in hair and makeup to do the whole thing. And then we got on set to do the song, to do the scene where I had those three songs. And he starts describing the scene to me. And it's completely different from the material I was given. The three songs were three different songs. And so he's saying, the Little Richard song you're going to sing over here, and then the B.B. King song you'll sing over here. And they weren't the songs that I was given. And so I said, Baz, I, I think I might have different material. And he said, oh, yeah, we changed that last night, but uh, you'll learn it. I'll get you the material. Oh and then goodness. as he's describing this to me, they're getting the camera. And mind you, they built a whole set. They've got Mandy Walker, our cinematographers, there with their camera set up. And he says, why don't you work with Elliot on these songs? Elliot's our musical director. So I started working with Elliot on Tutti Frutti and this B.B. King song and stuff. And, and, uh, and then he goes, just roll the cameras. And so they start rolling as I'm learning the songs. And then he goes, why don't we just run into the scene? And he starts describing the scene to me without me being able to look at it. And so we started just kind of crafting the scene in this way. So in my mind as an actor, I was thinking this is not going the way this was supposed to go. I've got my arms tied behind my back and I'm not able to do the thing I had prepared. So I didn't feel like it was going very well. And then we were supposed to have another scene in the 50s. And, and he said, you know, we don't have time to do that scene now because we got another actor uh, coming in. And so then I'm, now I'm thinking, okay, they're just trying to rush me out to get this uh, other actor in. So we cut the second scene. And then he said, now let's go over and do Suspicious Minds. And he goes, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to call you out. I'm going to say, ladies and gentlemen, Elvis Presley, you're going to come out and then do all of Suspicious Minds. I was going, thank God I prepared the whole thing. Right. He said one minute of right. that song. <laughs> so I come out, do all of Suspicious Minds. And then, and then he says, can you go into Can't Help Falling In Love now? Throws another thing at me. So then I go into Can't Help Falling In Love. And then he says, we're going to change your jumpsuit. And then we're going to go right into doing a press conference where I've written up answers on cue cards. And you're going to, I'm going to ask you questions and you're going to answer as Elvis. This wasn't planned. <laughs> so I sit down and we start doing this press conference and he's asking me questions and I'm reading up from these cue cards. And thankfully I'd watched these Elvis interviews so many times, but, um, and it just goes to show how great preparation is. Cause if you prepare and you do your homework and then you show up, then anything can be thrown at you and you're going to be okay. But I got done with that day and I hear of the other actor that's coming in and he's somebody I've looked up to for years and suddenly I'm thinking, oh my God, there's no way that I got this. And I didn't hear anything for a week. Oh. And then I was back in LA at this point, sort of just contemplating, you know, either I'm going to get the call that I didn't get it, in which case I've got to just savor the fact that I got to work with one of my favorite filmmakers for five months. Or I'm going to get it and I got to get to work immediately because right. this is a big task. Yeah. And, um, and then he called me and he woke me up at 7 in the morning in L.A. 
and I'm tired and I wake up and I see it's Baz Luhrmann and I go, okay, here we go. I pick up the phone and he's really dramatic and he goes, Austin, I just want to be the first one to call you and say, are you ready to fly, Mr. Presley? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how I got the call. So this is, as we've already heard uh, plenty of evidence of, a filmmaker who is unusual in a lot of ways. He does have a great eye for young talent. We have to note going back 27 years at least to when Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio pre-Titanic was one of his early, um, you know, major kind of breakthroughs. I believe that somewhere along the line, you and Leo spoke and he had some words of advice about working with Baz, right? Yeah, it was, it was, um, so Leo was my hero, truly. I mean, as a young actor, looking at somebody who, he started on television and then he proceeds to go from Romeo and Juliet and Titanic into working with the greatest filmmakers and having an impeccable career. And every, every role he's ever taken on, I, I just, he just gives every ounce of himself to. So I've always admired him so much. And um, I finally got to meet him when doing Once Upon a Time. And I was cast in Elvis the day before the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood premiere. Oh. And so I got to go to that premiere and I just had been cast in this film. And uh, I, I, I showed up at the premiere and I, I gave Quentin a hug. He was in the audience. And I hear from behind him in the, in the shadows, I hear, congratulations, bro. And I turn around and it's Leo. And he gives wow. me this big hug, which is just this really surreal moment. And, um, and then we ended up talking afterwards. And, and he said, you're going to love working with Baz. His, his attention to detail, his work ethic, his kindness. Um, he said he's just the greatest filmmaker you could ever hope to work with. But he said he's going to keep you on the very edge of what you feel is possible. And he's going to pull things out of you you never knew existed inside of you. And it's so true. I mean, I mean, you look at that screen test, that's, that's the experience that it is with Baz. Well, and I guess there was some time, quite some time before you really got into production on this, but there was a lot of, it sounds like almost like a research adventure with Baz during which you're meeting people, you're seeing things. And he's, he's again, um, asking you to do things that deliberately put you in position, I guess, an uncomfortable situation, right? Can you, can you share another, right? Like, I mean, it just sounds like there was a lot of stuff that he's asking you to do before the cameras ever rolled including, I think you know what I'm referring to. Yeah, so I think you're, you're referring to the recording studio, yes. right? Yeah, so that's, I mean, I knew and Baz knew in order to play Elvis, you've got to perform live. You know, you have to know what that feels like. But it's not in my nature to, to really, un, under my own volition, want to get up in front of a lot of people and perform live necessarily as myself or singing. And so Baz started to curate these experiences that allowed me to jump in the deep end. And one of them was the first time that I was in a, in a recording studio was RCA in Nashville. 
And so Baz and I went out. We did this road trip from Nashville to Memphis. And but when we were, and that's the first time I went to Graceland, which I can tell you all about as well. But um, in in Nashville, we we went to RCA where Elvis recorded. It's over 270 songs Elvis recorded in this in this studio. Dolly Parton recorded Jolene in this studio. It's it's such an incredible studio, you know. And uh, so I, <laughs> so I, I I'm in there, and I talked to other musicians beforehand and, and said, you know, what's it like when you finally go into a recording studio? I've never done it before. They said, oh well, the way we do it now is. You record one line at a time. You can go back. You can perfect things and that sort of thing. And so I was prepared to get in a booth and record my, my, you know, one line of the song or whatever it was. But that's not how Baz works. And so we did it old school, which was we had the drummer, the bass player, the guitar player, and myself all in the same room. And these are the greatest Nashville musicians. One of them, the guitar player, had played with Scotty Moore, who was Elvis's guitar player. And, um, and so I'm still in that place of feeling like I'm having to get over all that imposter syndrome of suddenly I'm the guy who's been cast as Elvis and all these people are looking at me like, you don't belong here, you know? And that's how it felt at that time. I felt like I had to prove myself to so many people. And, uh, and then Baz, rather than even just record the song with them, what he said was, we're going to bring everybody who works in RCA and everybody, the janitor, everybody, we're going to line up chairs like this and you're going to turn around and you're going to perform to them. So that's the way that we recorded those songs. So, I, so we performed Blue Suede Shoes first and suddenly now I'm singing Blue Suede Shoes and Heartbreak Hotel and Hound Dog and all these things to an audience full of people that he also the first time he said I want I want you all to heckle him so so basically trying to create a muscle memory for that moment in the film where uh, they're screaming get a haircut you know that sort of thing and uh, and so not only am I incredibly nervous but now I've got people screaming at me and probably and, some not nice stuff yeah, yeah yeah but I don't want that story to get misconstrued because it was it was ultimately an act of love on Baz's part, because what that does is it is it starts to expand your comfort zone. And but it, at the time, <laughs> at the time, it felt awful. Right. You know, it felt. It, but you got to go through those. It's yeah. the same thing. Like those first auditions are awful. Yeah. You know, you got to get through the discomfort of any new endeavor. And so that was that was my first time performing in front of people. And then he just started curating more and more experiences like that until finally we're on the Vegas stage and it was the greatest joy of my life, you know. Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. There was also, as you referenced a moment ago, a stop along the way at Graceland. I think it was kind of presented, like, just to be clear for people, Priscilla and Lisa Marie Presley were not, they're not involved with the making of this movie. They didn't approve the script, right? There was none of that. But I think they had a relationship with Baz. It was always going to be cordial and respectful and whatever. But it's, so at a certain point, how does the opportunity arise to meet these two women who were closest to Elvis of anyone? Well, I, I met Priscilla, so I didn't meet Lisa Marie until the film was finished. Okay. But Priscilla, I met at Graceland. And so after we finished our Nashville experience, Baz said, all right, now we're going to drive over to Graceland. And so we, we drove, we stopped in Tupelo where Elvis was born and got to the, go to the house where he was, he was born in this house. And, um, and so we spent a lot of time there in Tupelo and walked the streets that he used to walk to school and that sort of thing. And, and then, and then we drove to Graceland and, and Baz said, you want to meet Priscilla? I mean, it's, it felt like meeting an angel or something, you know? And, and so I, we went over to, to her room at Graceland and, and just laying eyes on her for the first time and realizing you're, these are the same eyes that looked into Elvis's all those years ago and fell in love, you know? And you're the, you're the mother of his only child, you know? I mean, just the specialness of that. Um, and she was so, uh, so generous and, and um, so kind to me. And, and now we've had a lot of time together, but at that time I was completely starstruck by her. Did you have one you know? question that you most wanted an, a- an answer to? It was sort of just being in her presence, really. You know, I, I, I had a million questions, but it was, that time was less about the questions and more about trying to feel his energy, you know, trying to feel the humanity of him. And so then she took me over to Graceland and and she said, you know, this is where I believe his spirit is. And so then I just, I got to just spend the day in Graceland by myself and, and just, um, just sort of sit in different rooms and think, you know, this is where they had Christmas and this is where he used to sit and eat breakfast and just humanizing him, you know? Yeah. So after all of this unbelievable amount of prep that we've talked about, the time comes to go to Australia to actually shoot. And I don't know, you were just before starting or had just started when, as people will recall, because I think it was my first realization that this was going to be a big problem. Tom Hanks, your co-star, gets COVID. And so what was the fallout of that? This was a new, un, like, scary, very, it's still scary, but, yeah. I mean, we knew nothing. We knew nothing. And, and I, uh, yeah, it was, it was so wild because I'd been preparing for a year and every second of the day for, for a year. And suddenly now we're about three days from starting shooting. And... I had actually been with with Tom every day leading up to that, and COVID had just made its way into Queensland where we were, and actually in the building that we were living in, somebody was tested positive, 
And so at that point, we, we were thinking, oh, is it okay for us to stay in the same apartment complex? And so they had the top scientists come and give us a, a lecture. And I was sitting with Tom in the theater of this apartment complex where we were living. And I was sitting on a beanbag chair and I looked up at Tom and uh, as as they're telling us like, okay, this is what we think this virus is. And they're trying to describe, because it's such the beginning stages, we had no idea. And they were describing it to us and, and Tom turned to me and he goes, if I get it, you're getting it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next day he tested positive. Oh, God. That was crazy. Um, and, and then it was the fear, because I didn't know if he, you know, how bad is this? And is he going to be okay? And right. once we knew that he was all right and that Rita was okay, then, and I was also quarantined because I had been with him. So they, they locked me away for two right. weeks. And that's the first time in a year that I didn't have some coach that I was working with. And I had been, those three days leading up to the film, I, starting, I, I remember just hoping for an extra week of prep because I didn't feel ready. Um, I don't know if you ever feel ready, you know, but I, at that point I really didn't feel ready. Yeah, more than you and, uh, for. <laughs> Yeah, I ended up with six months. Right. So it shuts down. Shuts down. Everybody, hey, guys, we're getting you your tickets to go home. Yeah, yeah. So they booked me a ticket back to L.A. They called force majeure on the film, which means that they don't have to pay anybody. Contracts are done. So the film could just go away at this point. After Company credit this. cards are shut down, so they can't pay for my apartment in Australia. Anything. And so I, I, I was packing, getting ready to go back to L.A. And then I just thought, if I go back... I'm going to lose all this momentum and suddenly I'm going to be having friends call me and say, Hey, can we go to dinner or this sort of thing? And, and then real life floods back in. And so I said, you know, I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay in Australia and for however long it is, I'll just, I'll just work. And so that's what I did. I just, I stayed and uh, progressively just kind of gave in to losing my mind and uh, <laughs> wallpapered my entire apartment with, with the timeline of Elvis's life and, um, and would go for these walks on the beach. I've talked about them before, but where I would just uh, listen to Elvis's laugh and just laugh out loud as Elvis walking down the <laughs> beach for hours. So that all the surfers thought I was just absolutely out of my mind. Um, <laughs> so that was my experience for six months of just waking up every day at three in the morning with my heart pounding because the terror didn't go away. I knew that it could be next month, it could be six months, but we're going to shoot this film. You did always believe they were going to come back. Yeah, I mean, Baz thought it was, I mean, he told me it was going to go away at one point. And then he said it might be a year. And he said, I think you should go back. And, and I said, I'm not going to go back. I'm going to stay. And, uh, and that just, it just kept this focus, you know? So when you guys resumed in September, 2020, there was an issue that you now had to confront, which is that pre-COVID, Baz has at least had told you, I believe, that his intention was to shoot in sequence, which is not common on movies. It would be very helpful on a movie where you're playing a guy from 19 to 42, fluctuating weight, changing voice, all of that. But when you come back from the shutdown, what became of that? Well, that quickly went out the window. <laughs> yeah, so now 
where there was a days there was days where we'd film 1976 and then 56 the next day and then and then you're in 68 the next day and so and Elvis's voice changed a lot over over his life and the way he sang changed a lot the way he moved changed a lot so I then had to that's why that timeline in my apartment was very helpful yeah you know because it was all about trying to lock yourself into that time period and and know where Elvis's fears were at that time, what his hopes were, where he was spiritually, what his voice sounded like at that time, you know. Um, all of those things placed me in, in, in his life in that moment. And, um, but it's tricky, you know. Well, just to give an example, the first, I think it was your first day of shooting or maybe your first performance was asking you, to do what? A 68 comeback special. So this is when he's been away from singing for seven years, right, yeah. right to focus on making movies. He's got to have had a lot of, I mean, you, take me into the mindset of how you approach that where your first thing back, you're going to have to perform yeah. this. Yeah, it was, so at this point now, and now it's a year and a half that I've been preparing every day. And the first thing we're going to shoot is one of the most iconic moments in Elvis's career and also in rock and roll history. It's the black leather walking out to do 68. And, um, and it's, a, it's an incredibly nerve-wracking thing when, when you realize that the only thing that is ever going to matter is what happens between action and cut. Because all those days in the rehearsal room, that year and a half of prep means nothing if it's not there between action and cut. So it puts an incredible amount of pressure on those moments. And so I was in the dressing room, that, that's the dressing room in the film, by myself beforehand. And I just was, my hands were shaking and I was just incredibly nervous. Just with this terror that I could let everybody down that everybody who's believed in me, that Baz and the studio and everybody who's all my coaches who've worked with me this whole time, if I go out there and, and I don't deliver, that I've let everybody down. And you also don't get that many chances like this in your career. So it felt like if this doesn't go well, I will maybe never work again as an actor. And so that's, that's a lot of terror. But the good thing for me was that I could rest in the fact that Elvis's career was on the line, that his terror was at its height because he'd been away from music for so long that if this didn't go well, he'd be a joke and people wouldn't respect him as a musician anymore. And so I knew that that terror wasn't a bad thing. And so then I could take that and go out there and suddenly have that moment where the music starts and I get to see a girl blush and then I see somebody else laugh and, and another guy rocking out. And suddenly now there's a rapport with an audience. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing to feel. And it became a complete out-of-body experience for me because I'm looking down to the black leather on my arms and this set that's identical to the set that I've watched so many times in that footage. And, um, and it transcended what I thought that would be because suddenly now I was... I wasn't having to consciously do this. It was like, it was energy somehow being channeled into the audience and then from them back into me. And um, I understood why 
musicians can be addicted to performing in those moments. And it also, it, it, it gave me solace for the rest of the, the shoot because I knew that if we can do this, the terror will still be there. Right. But if we can get through that and it's going to be a moment where it, it surpasses what I thought that could be, then we're going to be okay, you know. March 2021, you finally wrap the, so that, you know, the end of this journey, at least for having to play this band, obviously the journey has gone on for another two years, right? Is that the math right? Yeah, two more years since then. You said you had not seen your family for three years during the time that you were focused on this. Um, you'd been so intensely focused on this project. We've heard about the degree of preparation and even isolation with what you were doing in Australia. Take me through the project ends, you go to bed, what happens? So yeah, the project ends, I go to bed and then I woke up at, at about four in the morning and, um, I had this, just, it felt like a knife was stabbing me in the, in the stomach and I tried to get up and I couldn't stand up. And, uh, and I thought, what is this? And I started Googling on my phone, like, what is pain in stomach? You know, and I'm going, what is this? And you feel you, the worst things come up and everything seemed to point to appendicitis. And so I called my manager who was in LA and I said, you know, I think I, I can't stand right now. I don't know what's going on, but I, I'm, I'm in a lot of pain. Can you tell me what to do? And so he said, I'm going to call you an ambulance. And I said, don't call an ambulance. It's dramatic. And so he called one of the other producers and, and they got them out of bed and they drove me to the hospital and they, they started prepping me. They, they were doing all these tests and things. And they said, Oh yeah, your appendix burst. We're going to, we're going to prep you for surgery. And and I said, are you sure? And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, everything's pointing to us. And I said, well, okay. And, and they said, you don't need it anyway. I mean, we'll just take it out. <laughs> and I said, well, can, I, can we do like a CAT scan or something? And, and they said, okay, okay, yeah, we'll do that. So they gave me a CAT scan. Turns out it wasn't my appendix. It was it was just a virus that, that I guess, is, is it's, stimulates the same feeling that appendicitis does. And so it's just, uh, so it was, I had this virus and, but I didn't get sick the entire time I was filming this movie. And it's crazy how your body holds on. And then that day suddenly, so they put me on an IV and, and antibiotics and different things. And then, and then I was bedroom for a week and then, and then I flew to London to start shooting something else. I was going <laughs> to say, you, you, you haven't had a lot of time to either physically recover, uh, oh. process any of this, I imagine. Um, cause that by the after way, March 12th, I was going to say, I, that's, yeah. <laughs> uh, process. But, but I mean, the thing you flew to London for it's with Tom again, right? Tom and Spielberg have a world war two, uh, project masters of the air limited series. You did that for 10 months after finishing all this with Elvis. And I guess around the time that might've finished not long after, you were in, and I was uh, fortunate to be there at the time, in Cannes, where finally this movie that you've invested so much in was going to see the light of day. Had you seen it prior to that Cannes premiere? No. No? No. So you're watching it in the Palais with everybody else? Yeah. That's that scary. my first time. They said I could watch it before. Yeah. But I, I just thought, you know, it, it's going to be so special. 
or awful if gonna, it doesn't go well. It's a, it's a gamble. But if it goes well, then it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna be very special to get to watch this with an entire audience in the Palais at Cannes. I've never been to Cannes before. My father had never been outside the country before, and suddenly he's there in Cannes with me in his tuxedo, and uh, so I got to watch it for the first time with my dad in, in Cannes. And in case anyone hasn't heard, twelve minutes standing ovation. After which Priscilla Presley, who was there, posts on Instagram, quote, I'm just returning from the Cannes Film Festival. Baz Luhrmann's film, Elvis, received a 12-minute standing ovation. There was not an empty seat in the large theater, including the balcony. From my understanding, it was the longest ovation ever received for a film there. Actor Austin Butler's performance as Elvis was mesmerizing, close quote. And she later told the LA Times, quote, it was more than I ever expected. He became Elvis, close quote. This is the man's wife, widow. Um, shortly after that, their only child, Elvis and Priscilla's only child, Lisa Marie, said, quote, if Austin Butler doesn't win an Academy Award, I'm going to eat my foot, close quote. <laughs> the awards season journey that you have been on since can, and that will end on March 12th, and I wonder how you would describe it to somebody who, basically meaning 99.99999% of the world who's not experienced this. I mean, it's a pretty, as somebody who observes it as a journalist each year, I have a little bit of an idea, but you can't know unless you're experiencing it. I imagine there are some pretty high highs. Very sadly, in the case of your film's journey, there was a very low low, just two days after a wonderful Golden Globes. What are you going to tell your kids one day about this award season? Uh, I might need some more time to process this. You know, I might have a better answer in a couple months. <laughs> it is it is so much more of a roller coaster than I could have ever imagined um, because it is, it's incredibly, it's incredibly beautiful to get to experience people like all of you who've watched the film this reception I can't tell you how much it moves me walking into this room and, and that reception that you all gave because I, I truly didn't know if anybody would like the film and I I you, you know you you give everything to every role um, but this one was particularly I, I can't imagine ever feeling more pressure than I did for this one um so just the reception of all of you and of all, all of the fans that I've met, even in Budapest where I was filming Dune, like there's, there's people all over the world that have been so generous with giving their love and it means so much to me. And then getting recognition from peers and, and suddenly being around actors that I've looked up to my entire life who are complimenting the work, it just means so much to me. Um, so those are the things that I rest in, you know, cause there, there are, it is exhausting. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie to you. Like I've been talking about the same film for almost a year now. Yeah. And, and most of the time you're answering the exact same questions every day and, and, uh, and you're trying to not answer them in the exact same way, even though it's the same question. And, um, and you, you know, so there are those exhausting days, but ultimately I just, I, I try not to let the things in that aren't the joy for the most part. Um, but then there are those moments like 
the the shocking, uh, just incredibly heartbreaking loss of of Lisa Marie. I, I just still can't even fathom that it's real. Um, that really puts things into a different perspective. And um, but ultimately, that's that's the thing with this film for me is it's. And Baz and I talk about it a lot. This is, I'll, I know I'll never have an experience like this film again um, because it's so much more than a film to us. It, it's, it was, it's been such a part of our life. And, and it's also that family has gone through so much. And um, I often think of just what it would be like being, being Elvis's child and, and, and growing up with, people having ideas of your father and, and either looking at him as though he's he's a god or a Halloween costume or anything in between and or or believing things about him that weren't true or um, so many misconceptions and so to be able to bring humanity to that and have their to be able to have those moments that I had with with her um, those private moments of, of just hearing the stories of how he was just dad, you know, um, those are the things I'll just, I'll, I'll hold with me forever and, and cherish. In a moment, we're going to close with student questions. Um, yeah, which, part. yeah. <laughs> that's enjoyable. But in that minute before, I wonder if we can do a fun uh, little rapid fire of just a bunch of random stuff. I never know what you're going to do now after that <laughs> video in the beginning. <laughs> so you mentioned that you've shot Dune 2. This is the part that I believe Sting played in the David Lynch film. That's correct. Want to tell us anything about Dune 2? <laughs> This is where I run the risk of getting in a lot of trouble. Um, I, I can't tell you anything about the plot, I guess. Um, yeah, it's the role that Sting played. Uh, what can I say? Um, what I can say, this is the very diplomatic answer. I was a huge fan of the first film. Denis is one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, and the actors that he's pulled together for the first film and then and then for this film are I just truly titans and and I just I feel very honored to be one of one of uh, the company great um <laughs> is there a costume or piece of memorabilia from the set of Elvis that may have gone home with you yeah I took the black leather home nice <laughs> <laughs> What if we were to pull up your iTunes or Spotify playlist? Which Elvis song has been the most played, would you say? Oh, that's hard. I don't know. It depends. I mean, I, lately feeling in my body, I've been, I've been playing a lot. Nice. It's just such a great, upbeat song. Who in this business who you have not yet worked with do you most want to work with? You can only give us one name. Paul Thomas Anderson. Good choice. Is there a part that you dream of playing that you have not yet played? Uh, 
You're gonna have to come back to me on that one. I, I yeah. no, I don't think so. What are you most looking forward to about going to the Oscars? I believe for the first time, certainly as a nominee, but I don't know if yeah, maybe no, I've never been there before. Yeah, what are you most excited about? <laughs> Yeah, what am I? Uh, you know, I've watched I've watched the Oscars since I was a kid, and um, I think it's just going to be being in that room and just trying my best to be as present as possible. It's very hard in those rooms. You know, anytime you're around that many of your heroes, it's very hard. Um, I'm getting a little bit better at it, but I'm just going to try to be as present as possible. And the way I feel about it is truly. And truly that right now we've already won, you know, it, it, it's not about, it's, it's not about, I mean, of course it feels good to hear your name called on a night like that, but I, I love all those other actors so much and I'd be so happy for them. And, uh, and it also just, just being recognized at all feels, feels great. And to be in this place, um, and to just sort of be welcome to the table feels very nice. So, yeah. Last one from me. What are your plans for March 13th? <laughs> Sleep. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. yeah. And then get on, a, get on a plane and fly somewhere where I don't have any cell phone reception. Good. And good, just disappear. Good. <laughs> nice. Well, you've earned that, I think. Uh, let's go over here, please, first. Hi, Austin. I'm Susie. If you had to choose what you would do for a whole day with Elvis and what you would talk about, the, the things you would do, what would it be? I would want to play football with him. I would want to sing gospel with him. Um, I'd want to watch a movie with him. Um, yeah, maybe go for a horseback ride. <laughs> That's a good question. I've never been asked that before. That's good. Nice. Thank you. Our next question's down here on the left in front, Austin. Hi, Austin. My name is Gabby, hey. and um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank uh, my you for question being for you here. is: so I grew up watching you all my life, and I've loved seeing you flourish into these new serious roles. Um, and what do you look forward to? Like, what type of roles do you look forward to playing in the future? I guess it's 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 roles that that w scare me, you know, I think, um, that, I, that will pull something out of me that maybe I repress otherwise. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, I look for writing that somehow explores the human condition in a way that is very honest. Um, and then it's, and then it's really the filmmaker. I mean, I think that's why when I look at Leo being one of those people that's my heroes, it's, it's the directors that he's, he's chosen and, and had the opportunity to work with. So I think that that's often my northern star. Hi, Austin. My name is Inez, by the way. Inez, nice to meet you. Whoa, you said my name. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like, whoa. But um, just some advice. What would be your advice for wannabe actors or growing actors to get their foot in the door? to get their foot in the door. For me, I'm not good with like business style questions, but what I would say to you is 
the, the advice that I was given at a very young age was just make it about the work, not not about the outcome. So with with something like an audition, if if you focused on every opportunity of being in a, in a casting as as an opportunity to act and do your best as an actor, then you're growing each time. And then you're auditioning for your career and not the job. And so it's, it's focusing on the process rather than the outcome. And so, and then what does that look like on days that you don't have an audition? It's, it's you know, Larry Moss, one of my mentors, he, he told me read two plays a week. And so I, I did that for years where I'd, I'd just go out and get every Tennessee Williams play and I'd get every August Wilson play and I would I'd just read two plays a week. And it just, it broadens your, your mind to, to the potential for storytelling. Um, and then watch tons of films and just try to find the the, the, the performances and the, and the films that inspire you and, and just surround yourself with that. You're um, a big TCM guy, right? TCM. I mean, I watched resource, TCM. Right? I grew up on TCM. Yeah. My dad watched that all the time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just watching films and, and then find a great class that, I mean... I, I'm not sure what the story is here, but but you have uh, there's there's acting a, classes. And there, stuff it's here? all is that what number four is? film school in America. Yeah, we got it all. For, that's right. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, so yeah, great classes. I mean, I mean, because then you're you're practicing the craft and you're making it more about the craft than you are about an agent or something like that. Because all that will come, and um, and then and then when the time is right, then then. Somebody who's much more knowledgeable than I will say, this is the agent you should meet with, or that sort of thing, you know. But, but yeah, work on, just make it about the work. Um, hi, I'm Hannah. And hey, Hannah. Oh, oh, there you are. Hello. <laughs> uh, last night we were blessed to have Damien Chazelle here. And oh, great. How amazing is he? Oh, my gosh, he was so cool. Yeah, I love him. I love him. Um, and somebody asked a really, really cool question. If you could go back in time and witness the creation of, or the film process of making that one film, what would it be? And I kind of wanted to, I guess, not to mooch off their question, but also to mooch off their question. Um, what, I guess, role would you like to give a crack at that was a classic or something that's already been done? That's such a good question. Um, I mean, I think of, I think of Streetcar Named Desire. I mean, that's one that, that's the first one that came to my mind. I'll go with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great one. I mean, I'd love to just be a fly on the wall and watch Brando work, you know. Right. Hi, Austin. I'm Sarah. Hello. Nice Hi, to Sarah. meet you. Um, I was just wondering on days where, like, you felt very stressed or, like, under pressure, like, what was the number one thing that really helped you, like, get through those days and, like, push through? Well, thankfully, I was, I was supported by the most incredible people. So, Polly Bennett, who was my movement coach, and and Baz and the other cast members and um, and so they were always there you know making me feel very supported there were there were certain moments where I mean the closest thing I had to a nervous breakdown was during the Vegas rehearsal scene um, I don't know if we talked about this last time but um, the scene where I've I've uh, you know, we're, we're rehearsing for, for Vegas and I'm going around and trying to craft the song, 
you know, and we'd, we'd recorded, uh, there was a track that I was meant to do that too, where I spent four bars with the piano player and four bars with the guitar player and kind of work my way around the room. And eventually they get the song, you know, and, um, but when we got there, Baz said, you know, we did it once and it felt like all the air in the room was sucked out. And Baz said, you know, this isn't working. And I said, I know. And he said, all right, these are all real musicians, but we've muted their instruments. Do you think you could do it live? And then he told all the musicians to intentionally play the song incorrectly. And then he said, so now it's your job to get them to play the song right. And then he called action and... and but I'd had in my mind this perfect way to do it, which was four bars with the piano player, four bars with the guitar player, and so on. But I spent four bars with the piano player. He didn't get it right. And then I had to move on, and suddenly, after the guitar and the trombone and the drummer and everybody, they're all getting it wrong. It's a cacophony, and it sounded awful. And so it felt terrible. And I got done... And he called cut and then hair and makeup comes up to me and wardrobe is sewing me back into my clothes and everybody's surrounding me. And, and that was the moment where I really thought, I, I felt the world caving in and I thought I could have a panic attack. And I said, you know, I've, I've just got to take 10 minutes. Can you, can you guys just, just give, me, give me just a couple minutes? And I went into another room and I had this pep talk with myself. And so, so I think that this, you can be supported by many people, but when it's only you that is out there in that moment, sometimes you have to just talk to yourself. And so for me, that was, that was saying, you know what this song should be. And this is not about playing the scene perfectly. This is not about doing it the way that you've had it in your head for a year. This is about going out there and hearing the song that's in your soul and getting them to play it the way that you hear it. So then I went out there and I, and I said, I don't care if you spend 10 minutes with that piano player, you do it. And I'm talking to myself in the mirror. And, uh, and then I came out there and I spent as long as I needed with the piano player and he got it right. And then we moved on and suddenly th there was this unifying, beautiful music that was playing, which was exhilarating. And then things started coming out of my mouth that, that I'd never said before that weren't scripted that I'm, I'm saying to the guitar player, whoever that was. And it became another one of those out-of-body experiences. And it was such a good lesson for me in, in getting away from the idea of perfection or the idea of how you think something should go and instead being present to what, what your soul knows that this moment, you know, what the, the sound that you're hearing in your mind or whatever that is and, and spending as long as you need to get to that moment. And, and also the value of a, of a good old-fashioned pep talk with yourself. <laughs> it helps a lot. <laughs> Thank you for your question. Hi, Austin. I'm Lauren. Hello. So in late 2020, I went through kind of an Elvis phase, watched a lot of his interviews, and he said he never wanted to be forgotten. And I guess for me, I was introduced to Elvis through films and them using their music. So how does it feel to keep his legacy alive through this movie? That's an incredible privilege for me. I, I, I it's hard for me to even fathom that, that feeling, you know. Um, I remember 
very early on reading this book called Being Elvis, A Lonely Life, where he talked about exactly what you're describing of, of that, that fear that he had that after, after he died, he, he thought he would just be forgotten. And, and he felt that film was forever, but, but music comes and goes and there's new waves of music. And he, he really thought after he, after he passed that he'd be forgotten. Um, so I wish he was here today to know that all of you have resonated with his story. And, um, I know he's looking down somewhere and, and, and being very pleased right now that, um, that his legacy is, is more alive than ever, ever, you know, I feel very privileged to be a part of that. Hi, Austin. I'm Peyton. Hey, Peyton. If you could go back and relive the filming of one specific scene in Elvis, maybe because it was your personal favorite or it meant the most to you, which one would it be and why? Oh, well, that's such a good question. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is the Vegas show. Because the way that we shot that was as, as an entire concert. So we this curtain would come up i would walk out we perform the entire show where i go into the audience kiss everybody and come back up on stage finish with can't help fun and love and and the and the curtain comes down and so it was a it was an incredibly unique experience because it was there was a complete suspension of disbelief between me and the audience they only ever saw elvis and it wasn't like there was these moments where it was being broken. And, um, and so that was, I, I mean, I couldn't sleep after those nights because it was so exhilarating. And there's also those moments in, in times like that where I realize how, how lucky I am, you know, because somebody had to pay a lot of money to build these sets and, and to dress every one of the background artists and, and the incredible attention to detail that every one of the craftspeople came together to to create this environment. And now I'm getting to be up there and experience the closest thing to what Elvis experienced at that time that anybody else has ever had, you know. And um, so I feel I feel so uh, so incredibly lucky and. I wish I could go back and relive that because it was it was pretty it's pretty awesome. <laughs> Hi, um, Hi, I'm Janie. Um, I was wondering if acting and film never came into your life, what would you have wanted to do with your life? Because clearly you were meant to change the world, but you know what would you have done with it? I, jeez, what would I have done? I started so young, and and I was I. Hmm. You know, one thing I I loved doing when I was a kid was making uh, special effects makeup things at home, like fake bruises and cuts on my face and things. So I always, and I had these VHS tapes of how to make, you know, fake cuts and different things. And so I, I think I may have been like a special effects makeup artist or something, you know. <laughs> That's great. <Yeah. laughs> I know that you spent obviously so much time researching and prepping for this role. I mean, you were like absorbing his entire life. So what is one takeaway you took from that experience and like something that you feel like you learned from his life? So that's a very good question. Um, 
I mean, the, the takeaway from him that I didn't realize before I started researching was how sensitive he was, how spiritual he was. Um, and, you know, now I've had the opportunity to actually be in his bedroom where nobody's allowed. And I, I mean, Lisa Marie took me in there. And to see all the books on his bedside table that haven't moved since he passed away, and they're all spiritual books. They're just, he was such a deep thinker. And, um, and I think that that's one of those things that w I sure didn't know. Um, and, you know, there's that great documentary called The Searcher, because he was constantly searching. And I, so I think I can sort of tie in the other thing that's my takeaway personally from that, which is that there wasn't a roadmap for that type of fame. You know, what he experienced. The Beatles had each other. He didn't have anybody. And he came around before them. And so, bless his soul, he was this, this young kid who came from nothing. And suddenly he's the most famous person in the world and he's being judged. And he's, be, you know, either, either the incredible amount of love or the amount of hate that's over here. And you realize how, how there's this whole whirlwind that comes about with fame. And it can, it can blow you around, and it can it can warp your idea of yourself, and it can um, it can really mess with your mind and um, and make you feel lost, um, and and it can also make those quiet rooms feel all the quieter when you're experiencing a lot of love, and then suddenly you're in an empty hotel room by yourself and. And you're just experiencing the, the emotions that we all experience, but suddenly your dopamine has shot up there and now it comes crashing down. So I think that that's taught me a lot about how I want to deal with this part of my life now and, and do my best to just stay as present and grateful and grounded as possible and as human as possible. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, bless him because he's he's really he's taught me a lot about how to deal with that when it when it all starts going really fast, you know. So thank you for that. Austin, uh, I just want to say on behalf of everybody here at Chapman and the Hollywood Reporter, thank you so much for taking the time to do thank this. You guys. Thank we you really so appreciate much. it. Thank you. This was amazing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.